Many businesses are familiar with doing what they call a SWOT analysis. And SWOT is an acronym that stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. And when a company does this, it's to evaluate and analyze their company. What, what are they good at? What are some things they are weak on they need to fix? What are some opportunities that stand before their company at this particular time? And what are some dangers their company faces in the company health and the company life? In a lot of ways, the letters to the seven churches, they can and they should for us. They should focus as a SWOT analysis for us as individuals, for us as a church. Right? Again, it is for both. It has to be for both. We, we are a church. They are written to the church. We have to examine it as a church. But at the same time, the church is made up of us as individuals. So our strengths, what are our spiritual strengths? We should ask ourselves as we go through here. We look at what Jesus commends in the seven churches and we should say, is that something Jesus would commend in me? If Jesus were writing me a letter, would he say that about me? What is something I'm, I'm good at as far as being a disciple of Jesus and living for him? Then the weakness. So we come to the areas where Jesus says, you know, I have this against you. We should say, well, does that mean? I mean, do I have that kind of spiritual weakness? Am I tempted in the way it talks about there? Uh, what are some areas of my life where I'm not as I should be as a disciple of Jesus? And then opportunities. What are some opportunities that are set before me right now in this particular point? Not, not 20 years in the future, not when I get this particular issue squared away, but right now. What are some opportunities Jesus has laid before me so I can serve Him and I can do His will as a disciple of Jesus? And then threats. What, what poses a particular threat to my spiritual life right now in, in this particular area? Not Again, not what might happen in 10 years, but right now at this point in my life, what is a particular spiritual threat for me? So we look at it as individuals, but we should also look at it as a church. As a church, there are some things we are good at. There are some things we are strong in. What are those things? What are our strengths as the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church? But at the same time, being honest about our strengths requires that we're honest about our weaknesses. Because while there are things we are good at, there are things we are not so good at. What are our spiritual weaknesses? What are some things we don't do well we need to work on to try to fix? What are opportunities? What are some opportunities we as the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church in 2021, we have right here, right now? Moving in, not again, not something that may come or may not come, but right now, what are some opportunities we have? To be a beacon of hope, to be a gospel mission, to take the gospel to Gaiman and to the ends of the earth. And then what are some threats? What are some issues we as a church face that if not kept in check, if not dealt with and addressed, could bring about the end of our church? And we don't like to think like that. But the reality, 3,000 plus churches closed last year. And 3,000 plus churches will close this year. And make no mistake, every one of them said at one point, that won't be us. So what are some threats that if we don't deal with could lead us to the place where that is the issue we're facing? We're having to have a special business meeting and vote. 
Do we just need to close up and sell the building and donate the money to this? What do we need to do? What are the threats we as a church face? We we can go through this, and as we go through these seven letters, we can come out on the other side stronger and healthier and better able to face the opportunities and the, the challenges that whatever 2021 is going to bring. Now, our first letter is to the church in Ephesus. So open your Bible if you haven't already to Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Revelation 2, verse 1 through 7 should be page 949 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I must get a stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, and how thou cannot bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and hast borne, and hast had patience for my name's sake, and hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds, the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The title of the message this morning is, A Loveless Church. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, as we look at these letters, all of them, help us to examine ourselves and our church in this fashion. Let your spirit be a part of what we do. Because, Lord, we are all prone to either judging too harshly or judging too lightly. Uh, and Lord, we don't want we don't want to be too hard on ourselves, but we don't want to be too light on ourselves either. Father, we want to see things as they are with with clarity, with the Holy Spirit showing us our strengths as a church, our strengths as individuals, our weaknesses to know what they are so we can address them. The opportunities that lie before us. And what are the challenges we face? Father, let your spirit and your word work together to open our eyes and our hearts to these things so we can take them and we can deal with them head on. And Father, that we as a church could be a beacon of hope in our community, that we would be a gospel mission ensuring this gospel is proclaimed in Guymon and Goodwill and Texhoma, Hooker and to the ends of the earth. Father, we we know It is your desire to see the nations saved, to see nations made as disciples of Jesus. And we want to be a part of what you want done. We want there to be disciples of Jesus in India, in Bulgaria, in Uruguay, in Africa, because of the efforts we have put forth here. Whether it be money we send or people we send or other support we can give, 
Use us, O God, to be a part of what you're doing in the world. And let us take what we learn in these seven churches and let us apply it to our lives. And let us examine ourselves, make the necessary corrections. And let us be stronger and healthier as individual disciples and as a church. Because of the time we spent here and the time we spend in your word. Fill me with your Holy Spirit this morning and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you once said. Help me to only say what you once said, Father. Let me not get carried away with anything. Just fill me and guide me and give me clarity, I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, At its height, the city of Ephesus was one of the most important cities along the coast of Asia Minor. It was had been founded to command one of the main highways of Asia Minor. It was a great city of commerce and the home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. The, the church in Ephesus was started by the Apostle Paul in Acts 19 and 20. Paul spent about two years in Ephesus preaching the gospel and establishing the church. Now, as Paul preached the gospel, souls were saved, lives were changed, and the church grew. The, the disciples there demonstrated their conversion to Jesus and their change of life by living for Jesus in, in such a way that in one instance, they took all of their magic books, which were very common for people to have in those days, and they took them and they, they burned them. Right? They didn't sell them and get the money from them. They, they destroyed them because they figured the books were evil and nobody ought to have them. Now, this was a great sacrifice as... That money was, was worth, I mean, the money they were for was worth a lot of money and they could have been sold for quite a bit. Uh, they also had such a break that it made a difference in the community. The, the world in Ephesus was different because of the disciples of Jesus. Because the gospel went there, the world was different. Now, this was about 40 years prior to Jesus sending this letter. And in those 40 years, things had, had changed a little bit. Some things had stayed, some were still good, but there were some issues that needed to be corrected. And Jesus dealt with those head on. Now, of course, if you're familiar with these seven letters, you know that verse 4 and 5 deal with the main issue. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. The issue is the church had left its first love for Jesus. There was a time when their service and their devotion to Jesus was based upon the fact they loved Jesus. But over time, that had changed. Over time, their service and their devotion to Jesus was, was based upon something other than their love for Jesus. Possibly, this is what was supposed to be done. Possibly a, a legalistic sense of self-righteousness. I, I do this in order to, to be saved. And Jesus told them to repent and to do their first works or else. And we'll talk about the or else in a little bit. But the main thought for us to understand today, is the life of a disciple of Jesus should be marked by loving devotion to Jesus. The life of a disciple of Jesus must be marked, should be marked, by loving devotion to Jesus. And, and it must be both. right? It must be a loving devotion. Devotion without love leads to dry religious duties, which are not in any way acceptable to Jesus. But love without acts of devotion is really not love at all. 
For Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So it must be a loving devotion. This is what Jesus expected in Ephesus, and this is what Jesus expects in Gaiman. What he expects from you, from me, as his disciples, is our lives to be marked by loving devotion to him. So what I want to do is quickly-ish give you six characteristics of loving devotion. First is, loving devotion is encouraged by Jesus. Loving devotion is encouraged by Jesus. One of the identifying marks of loving devotion is being encouraged by Jesus. Just think about in any loving relationship with you, you have. Who can encourage you more than anybody else? Isn't it your spouse? Isn't it that person you are closest with? Don't they have the most power in all the world to encourage you when you're discouraged and when you're down and when the world has beaten you up? They do. And for a disciple of Jesus... We should be able to find encouragement in Jesus because it's easy to get discouraged in this world. It is easy to get beat down for all sorts of reasons, whether it be our own failures, whether it be issues going on in our life, issues going on in the world. The devil knows the power of discouragement. And so he uses that weapon. He wields it well to to beat down disciples of Jesus. It can lead to doubt, despair and even bitterness. But the disciple of Jesus, with a loving devotion to Jesus, is able to be encouraged by Jesus. And in these first two verses, we're given two reasons disciples of Jesus should be encouraged by Jesus. The first is Jesus cares about us. In verse one, it says that Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hands and he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, we saw last week. That the, the stars or the stars represent the angels, which are the, the pastors, the elders of the church. The candlesticks are the churches themselves. So the picture what Jesus sends to them is this. Uh, your pastor, your elders, they're right here in my hand. Like I'm holding them. I'm taking care of them. I've got them. And as far as you as a church, I'm there with you. Right, I'm not far off. I'm not away. I'm walking in your midst. I am there. I know. I care. Now, again, keep in mind the characters of the, the, the character of Jesus, which is revealed, almost always deals with the issues they're having. So here you have the one whose love they have left saying, I'm there with you. You've left me, but I've not left you. I'm still there. I'm walking in your midst. I'm I'm there in every service you have. I'm with you always. For us, what we learn from this is Jesus is personally involved and concerned about what goes on in the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. He cares about all we do. Uh, He's here with us now and he'll be with us on Wednesday and he'll be back next week. Because of where we are in the world, because of the size of our church, it's easy for us to believe no one outside of those who are here care. No one outside of the people who are in this room care about what goes on in the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church in the panhandle of Oklahoma. And and it's entirely possible many people don't care. But the one person who matters, the one person who is significant and important, he does care. 
And He is here. He is with us. He knows personally what's going on in your life and mine. He knows what's going on in our church as a whole and in our lives as individuals. But make no mistake, Jesus isn't concerned about buildings. And Jesus isn't concerned about denominations. His, he's not in the business of, of building Free Will Baptist or Southern Baptist or Nazarenes. He's in the business of redeeming people. He died for people. And he changes them and saves them and walks with them. He cares about what goes on here. Not because we're a free will Baptist church with a nice building. But because you're here. Because I'm here. And he cares about us. Jesus cares about us. That's an encouraging thought. The disciple of Jesus can know, no matter what the world says, no matter what's going on in the world, Jesus cares about me. can find encouragement. But not only does Jesus care about us, Jesus knows about us. Look at verse 2. I know thy works. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But I just want you to know it says, I know. He knows Everything they have gone through, he's going to tell every church in one way or another, I know. This church, which is not really suffering too badly, he knows. The church at Smyrna, which is suffering badly, he knows. He he knows all about what is going on in our lives. He knows all about what's going on in our church. He, He knows He knows us. He knows all about us. There is nothing in our lives which he does not know. Now, here's a part of why this is so encouraging. So often in our service and our devotion to Jesus, it does go unnoticed by the world. It may even go unnoticed by your pastor and by the church. But it never goes unnoticed by Jesus. We shared the gospel. They weren't saved. Nothing happened that we can solve. But Jesus saw. He knows what we did. We spent hours praying and no one sees and no one knows. And nothing seems to happen. But Jesus sees. And Jesus knows. If there is nothing we do for the name of Jesus. For the advancement of the gospel that he does not see. He does not care about. He does not know about. Sometimes we can get discouraged because it seems that all of our efforts go unnoticed. And, and, and we all would say, I don't do it for the applause, but for all of us. Everybody likes to be appreciated sometimes. And it can be discouraging if it feels like nobody sees and nobody cares and nobody appreciates. But there's encouragement to know Jesus sees and Jesus cares. And Jesus appreciates. The life of a disciple of Jesus should be marked by loving devotion to Jesus. And loving devotion to Jesus is marked by being able to be encouraged by Jesus. Secondly, loving devotion labors patiently. But he says in verse 2, he knows their, their works, their labor, and their patience. Says in verse 3, they have Born and has patience for his name's sake, have labored and have not fainted. Now, there, there is a powerful word picture being painted in several of these words. And it is of working really, really hard. The, the Greek word translated as labor 
it means working to the point of exhaustion and maybe even beyond. But the labor they were doing for Jesus was not easy. It was difficult. They had worked to the end of their strength and all that they possibly could. And then they had kept on going. Now, twice, Jesus commends them for their patience. And the word patience carries with it the idea of patiently enduring hardships. And they had labored and they had not fainted. So they labored to the point of exhaustion. They patiently endured whatever hardships came as they labored for Jesus. And then when they were tired to the point of exhaustion, they did not faint. They kept on going. They persevered in their faithfulness and their devotion to Jesus. In the life of any church, in the life of any disciple, there are going to be times where things are hard. In the life of a church, there will be times where there seems to be few conversions, where there seems to be few attenders, where there seems to be struggles to just make any steps forward. There will be times in our life as disciples of Jesus where our Bible reading seems dry, our prayers seem empty. And in those times, we will be tempted to throw in the towel and quit. The the temptation is easy to do. I mean, as a church, it's easy to say, well, I'm here and there's not much going on, but there seems to be something going on over there. I'm going to jump to that church. Or as an individual, I've tried to read my Bible and I can't get much out of it. There's just no point. The, The temptation to give up when things get hard will... It's a real thing. I mean, it is a a real issue we will all face in our lives. And that is the easy way out. I mean, there's just no doubts. Giving up when it's hard is always the easy thing to do. But as disciples of Jesus, we're not called to do the easy things. We're called to do the right things. And the right thing is to labor and have patience and to faint not, no matter what, would be going on in our lives. Why do we keep going when things are hard? Why do the Ephesians keep going despite the difficulty they were facing? Look at the end of verse 3. Or in verse 3, for my name's sake. They wanted Jesus to be glorified in their lives. They wanted Jesus to be glorified in their lives. They wanted everything they did to honor the one who had died on the cross for them. In in many ways, these two verses give us a great description of what a fully devoted disciple of Jesus looks like. They labor and they're patient and they have borne and for his name's sake, they labor and they faint not. They work really, really hard and they don't give up when things are difficult and they do it. So Jesus gets all the glory, not them. Not their church, but Jesus. It's, it is to be done so people will say, Jesus is obviously worthy. Right? I mean, that's the kind of the point. They had labored so that when people saw all they had done, they would say, not how great this person is, but they would say, imagine how great his Jesus is. Look at all he's doing. Look at how long he is suffering. Look at how far he is going. Look at how much he labors. His Jesus must be awesome. 
His Jesus must be great. Tell me. Tell me about this one that is worth all of this in your life. That is why we labor. That is why we patiently endure. That is why we faint not. We want Jesus to be glorified through our lives. The world understands doing what's easy. The world understands quitting when it gets hard. But when people do things that are intensely difficult, when people keep going when it's difficult and they see, why are you still going? Why not just give up? We can tell them about Jesus and it would be, wow. I mean, I may not agree with you about Jesus, but apparently you think he's awesome. I want to hear more about what you have to say. The life of a disciple of Jesus should be marked by loving devotion to Jesus. And loving devotion labors patiently for the glory of Jesus. Thirdly, loving devotion makes purity a priority. It says in verse 2, they cannot bear them which are evil. And in verse 6, that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which, by the way, it says Jesus also hates. So what we see is they had fought against sin in their lives and in their church. They wanted to live pure lives. That's a part of why they they wanted Jesus to be glorified in their lives. Jesus can't be glorified if we're living inconsistently. Jesus can't be glorified if we say our God is holy, but we live unholy lives. They wanted to be pure so people could see the difference Jesus had made in their lives. Now, Moral purity is just as important for us in our day as it was in theirs. Look at what the Apostle Paul said. The foundation of the Lord standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and earth, some to honor, some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel of honor, sanctified, meet for the master's use, prepared to every good work. So if I claim Jesus as my Savior, if I claim Jesus as my Lord, then what I'm supposed to do is depart from iniquity. Let everyone, not just one or two, but everyone. So if you have committed your life to Christ, if you have called upon him to save you, then what you're to do is to do your dead level best to depart from iniquity. And the reason, and I like the idea of purging, because it means it's a constant process. It would be, man, you have no idea how much I wish being holy was just a matter of saying, I renounce all sin and I'm never going to pick it up again. And from that point on, never a temptation, never a failure. Life would be wonderful. I I could I could stay up here on my knees and pray six hours. If at the end of the six hours, I never struggled with sin again. But sadly, that is not the way it works. There is going to be a constant purging, a constant purifying, which takes place In our hearts and in our lives. But there's a promise associated with it. If we are faithful to purge it. If we are faithful to purify ourselves. Then we will be vessels of honor. Sanctified and useful for our master. And prepared for every good work. Now. 
Isn't that what we want? I mean, as disciples of Jesus, isn't that what we want? To be sanctified and useful to our Master. We want Jesus to to look down and see us and say, I can take red and use Him for anything in the world because He's so devoted to me, He's purging His life of sin. He is one I can use and I can save souls through Him and I can answer His prayers and I can use Him in mighty ways in His community. That's what we should be, what we all want with our lives. But the only way he will say that, the only way we can be that, is if we work to purge ourselves from our sins. If we justify our sins, if we minimize our sins, if we grow accustomed to our sins, if we love our sins and hold on to our sins, we will not be vessels of honor. We will not be sanctified. We will not be useful to our master and there are any number of good works Jesus would use us for that he cannot use us for because we are not devoted to him. The life of a disciple of Jesus should be marked by loving devotion to Jesus and loving devotion to Jesus makes purity a priority. Fourth, loving devotion uses discernment. They has tried them which said they were apostles and were not, and found them to be liars. Now, here's kind of what happened in their day. It wasn't like today, but in their day, people would just show up. Oh, you're having a church service. I'm an apostle. Could I come and speak to your church and maybe share a word from the Lord for you? And people would say, yeah, sure. And then the apostle would get up and he would speak. And what they did was they didn't have like a Bible like we have, but they still knew what Jesus had said. And they had been passed on to them. Paul had taught and letters Paul had written that had been circulated. And they would say, wait, you're saying this. And Jesus said that. Paul wrote this. I don't think you're right. And so they would push them out of the way and say, no, I'm sorry. We're not going to give you any more place. You need to stop. Stop talking Please excuse yourself from the church. You are not welcome to come here and speak. You're a false apostle. In verse 6 it says that they had hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hated. Now commentators are divided on exactly what the deeds of the Nicolaitans were, what the doctrine was. Most that I've read believe that Nicolaitans were people that took grace as a license to sin. We know Jude wrote against such people, so it's likely this is a similar issue. So what they did was, these were people who said we're under grace and not the law. So you can live however you want to. Jesus doesn't really care about how you live. Your life is yours as long as it makes you happy. It's mutually pleasing between you and whoever else you want to be involved in. You go and make yourself happy. You be you, live your own truth. All of those kinds of things that you might hear from someone like that. But notice, now they hated the deeds, but that's that's not overly important, right? I mean, you and I can hate people, but that doesn't mean we're right, does it? We could hate certain doctrines, but that doesn't mean Jesus necessarily feels the same way about it. But, But it does tell us how Jesus felt about the doctrine, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and what does it say? He hated them. That's a strong word. That's not my interpretation. That's just literally what Jesus said, which I also hate. You know, if I were to stand up here and name a false teacher that taught that sort of 
grace as a license to sin and said Jesus hated their doctrine, hated them. It would just be very politically incorrect. And, and yet, and yet it would be biblically accurate, wouldn't it? That's exactly what Jesus did. Now, they needed discernment because, they, again, they didn't have a whole Bible. Can you imagine how difficult that was when they didn't have a whole Bible? But we do. We have God's Word completed in our hands. And the reality is we need discernment. If not as much as they did, I, I really think maybe more. It was difficult to be a false teacher in this day. Right? Like, if I was a false teacher and wanted to teach at the church at Ephesus, I had to travel to Ephesus. I mean, that's, it requires effort and money and go there and convince them to, to let me talk. But now I don't need all that, do I? Now I can get my iPad and I can set it up and I can go on Facebook Live and I'd be like, hey, it's the prophet Stacy here. Let me tell you what the Lord has laid on my heart lately. And, and if I say what people want to hear, Right? If I say what's popular, if I say what certain groups want to hear, then, then it's going to get shared. And then it'll get shared again, and it'll get shared again, and it'll get shared again, and again. And, and before long, some random gomer in, in Guyman, Oklahoma, has prophesied to thousands of people all over the world and, and half of them are saying, that's exactly right. Why? Because that's exactly what they wanted to hear. Yes, that's what I wanted to happen. Truth. God said it. And the other half will say, no. God would never say that. God would say something different. But, but over on this group, there's another prophet who's saying something different. And he's saying what they want to hear. And so they're sharing it is what's true. How do we know? How do we know? What's right and what's true? We have to test it against what God has said. Listen. Our world is filled with false prophets right now. And it always has been. But here recently God has revealed many of them. They made all of these predictions about how certain events in November were going to go. And what would happen in January on the 20th. And they said, the Lord told me this would happen. And what they said didn't happen. According to Bible, what does that make them? False prophets. False apostles. And we know that. It's clear. Deuteronomy says, if a prophet says a word from the Lord and it comes not to pass, he did not speak for the Lord. So any prophet we listen to who made a, pro made a prophecy about the election and their prophecy was wrong, we need to unfollow them, delete them because they are false apostles, false prophets. They have lied in the name of the Lord. And we have to notice that. Now, you say, but they, they look so kind and they look so much like us. But the Bible says, God's word says, that for an apostle of the Satan 
to appear as an angel of light or to appear as an apostle of Christ is no big deal. Why? Because Satan himself can appear as an angel of light. Jesus warned false prophets would be like wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul talks about people who will use gospel but preach another gospel. Who will preach Jesus but are talking about a different Jesus. Who will mention the Spirit but they refer to a different Spirit. Listen, just because someone says gospel, Bible, Jesus, Holy Spirit, that does not even mean they're saying the same things we do. So how do we know? What do we do? We test it against Scripture. That's what the Bible says to do. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 22. Test all things. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every appearance of evil. We've often taken abstain from every appearance of evil to mean don't do anything that people could say is, is a sin. That's not what it means. It's given in the context of prophecy. If someone makes a prophecy and it doesn't hold up to the muster of Scripture, it has an appearance of evil to it. What are we to do? Not to say, well, most of it was okay and I like some of it. No, we're to throw it all out. We'll talk about false teacher multiple times throughout our study in the seven churches because false teachers always been a problem. And they always will be. And in a day like ours, where any gomer from his mother's basement can get online and go viral, the need for discernment is greater than it's ever been. We are fools if we believe everyone who says they're talking in the name of Jesus. Test me. I have said multiple times, test me. Prove me. I'm pretty confident what I'm saying is the Bible. If I'm not, I want to repent of it. I don't want to be wrong. So don't, don't take what I say. Go today. Look up 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15. See what Paul says about false prophets. Read Genesis or Matthew 7, 15, what Jesus says about wolves in sheep's clothing. Read 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 22 about the need to prove all things. Do a, do a search on what the Bible says about prophets and false prophets and false teachers. And make no mistake, we're going to see later where God threatens to kill them. Jesus says he will kill the prophetess Jezebel and her children with death. False teaching, false prophecy is no minor thing. It damns people to hell and Jesus destroys the false prophets. Make no mistake. The life of a disciple of Jesus should be marked by loving devotion to Jesus and loving devotion to Jesus uses discernment. Fifth, loving devotion loves Jesus. This could sound obvious, but this is the point of the book. Of this particular letter. Now, from all appearances, all we've seen, this is a really good church, right? They're active, they're devoted, they're spiritually mature, it seems. They have discernment, they're doctrinally sound, they're morally pure. And yet they're still, nevertheless, I have somewhat against it. There's still something. It's not as it should be. And what they were guilty of is something that is. Really difficult to even notice in ourselves. And it is almost impossible to notice in others. But to our Lord who knows our hearts. 
and our thoughts as well as our actions and our speech, it was very clear. They had left their first love. They had exchanged their love for Him for just the busyness, the outward deeds which needed to be done. And that's part of what's hard here. The works needed to be done. The holiness needed to be done. The discernment needed to be done. But in the process of of doing the stuff, they had left their love for Jesus. And Jesus says, this is not acceptable. You know, at, at its most basic, a loving devotion must actually love. The one whom is the ops, the object of their devotion. To be a disciple of Jesus, there must be love for Jesus. Now, in light of all they were doing and had done, it would be easy to say, what's the big deal? I mean, they're, gosh, look at all they're doing. How is this so wrong? But to answer, we have to remember what the Bible says about love. 1 Corinthians 13 is a familiar passage speaking about love. And at the very first it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, love, and become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, but I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow my goods to feed the poor, Though I give my body to be burned, and though I and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. This this part right here should really be like a stopping point for us. I mean, just think about what he says. What if you could speak with all the tongues of men and angels? I mean, that would be impressive, right? If you could just supernaturally. Not you spent a hundred years in language school. You supernaturally could speak all the languages in Gaiman. Let's not even go to the world. Just all the languages in Gaiman. Fluently. And you understood the language of angels. Whatever that might be. That would be impressive, right? I mean, that's like a big thing. But according to God's word, if you could do all of that, but you don't have love, you're just noise. A sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. It, and, and tinkling may not be the best translation because it's not like ting, ting. It's more like bang, clang, bang. Right? It, it pictures just noise. So if we could speak to every person in Gaiman in their language, with their dialect, fluently, but we didn't love them as we shared, it would just be blah, blah, blah. Useless. Or we had the gift of prophecy. You knew the future. You knew all mystery. You had all knowledge about what's going on in the world right now. And you had faith so you could move mountains. I mean, legitimately, literally move mountains. Not symbolically overcome obstacles, but move mountains. Again, that's big, right? I mean, if we could do that, that would be impressive. The world would be massively impressed with us. The church would be massively impressed with us. But Jesus is not. If we had all that but didn't love, we would be nothing. 
would be nothing. That's huge. Golly. Or, imagine you sell all that you have. And you use all of it to feed the poor. You donate all of it. You don't keep any of it for yourself. Or, or you go to India. And in the process, you are a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are big things, right? And yet you didn't love. That sacrifice would profit you nothing. Now, we often interpret this in in light of our love for one another, and, and that's a valid application. But we're to love who first? So if I do all of these things, but I don't love Jesus, then my speech is a noise. We are nothing. And it profits us nothing. A a loveless devotion, even a devotion like what we see in Revelation 2 and 2 and 3, is not acceptable to Jesus. No matter how much we do. You say, well, why? Well, what is the first and great commandment? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And upon these two commandments hang all the rest of the law and the prophets. That's a big thing. If you've read the book of Leviticus, where it talks about the the sacrifices of the law in minute detail, you know that's a tremendous statement. Why is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbors, yourself, so important? The reason is, is because if we do that, we'll do everything else. If we were to look at the Ten Commandments, the first four of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with people. If I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I will do the first four. And all of the applications of that found throughout the rest of Scripture. And if I love my neighbors, I love myself, I will keep the last six and all of the applications of that found in Scripture. Now the reason this was so significant when Jesus taught it, the religious leaders did all kinds of things. Right? I mean, they were busy. They served. They did things. They sacrificed. They gave money. They took vows. They kept their vows. They, they did a lot of things with their religious activity. But, but they had missed the biggest thing. They didn't love God. And so they didn't love His people either. The lesson, the danger. It's possible for us to get busy in religious activity and miss out on loving Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can come to church every time the doors are open. We can give generously. We can share the gospel. We can do any number of things. But if we don't love the Lord, our God, we have missed what is really most important. Now listen, I believe we ought to come to church. I believe we ought to share the gospel. I believe we ought to give generously. I believe we ought to do all sorts of things. But if we do all sorts of things, but we don't love Jesus, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have missed it all. According to To Jesus, loving Him is more important than all of our labor and all of our works and all of our patience and all all of our discernment and all of our holiness. And according to 1 Corinthians, it's more important than 
all of our spiritual gifts and all the sacrifices we can make. If we were to sum up what Jesus says here and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we, we could say a loveless devotion is a worthless devotion. Because it, it is not valuable to Jesus at all. Now, again, let me show you this is important. Look at the last of verse 5. He says if they don't do this, he's going to come to them quickly and remove the candlestick out of its place, except they repent. Candlestick's the church, so what's going to happen? If they don't repent of their loveless devotion and go back to loving devotion to Jesus, He is going to come and He is going to close the church down. Again, that's a huge thing, right? Jesus would rather there not be a church in a given location than there be a loveless church in a given location. How, how significant is this? The life of a disciple of Jesus should be marked by loving devotion to Jesus. And loving devotion loves Jesus. And then finally, loving devotion trusts Jesus' promises. Verse 7. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All who overcome in Ephesus, who Repent, remember where they were, repent of their loveless state, go back to do their first works, overcome the dry, dusty spot in their heart and begin to love Jesus. They, they will eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the garden of God. Now, the tree of life, I think ultimately, this just speaks about they'll be in heaven. I mean, the tree of life speaks of the fruit that we eat of it gives us the fullness of eternal life, the fullness of life in general. It's in the garden of God, which I think would be, or the paradise of God, which I think is heaven uh, at the end of, of the book. So the picture is those who, who love Jesus and have a loving devotion to Jesus, they go to heaven is ultimately kind of what it says. And as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of something up pastor said in a book I was reading once, or a sermon, I think it was a sermon, and he said this, heaven isn't a place for those who fear hell. Heaven is a place for those who love Jesus. Heaven isn't a place for those who fear hell. Heaven is a place for those who love Jesus. If I didn't love Jesus... What would make heaven grand? If I didn't love my wife, what would make our home grand? If I don't love Jesus, why would I want to be in a place where he is the center and the focus and the object of it all? And this is the promise of those who love Jesus. Jesus, have a loving devotion, Jesus, they believe this promise. And so they labor and they're patient and they work and they use discernment and they check their heart to make sure they love him. They, as, as the author of Hebrews says, they joyfully endure the plundering of their goods, knowing they have a more enduring possession for them in heaven. If I believe one day 
I'm get, if I overcome, I will get to eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. I will fight the idols of my heart to ensure I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I will labor for Him. And I will find encouragement for Him. And I will use discernment so no one leads me astray from Him. And I will be holy unto Him because I want Him to be glorified in my life. Those who love Jesus will overcome. And they will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So as we come to the end of the message, the question we all have to wrestle with, have I become an Ephesian Christian? Have I left my first love? Now, as we've seen, this doesn't mean we've stopped serving Jesus. It doesn't mean we've stopped reading our Bible or praying or going to church or any of that stuff. It, it just means we've stopped loving Jesus as our first love. Think about when you first got saved. How wonderful Jesus was. I mean, when you first understood who He was, what He had done, that that joy you felt, the, the way you, you did things and you joyfully served Him. You, you just were excited. Do you still have that today? Now, here's where we get cynical. We say, well, yeah, but I've matured. And I mean, you just can't stay like that forever. Wow. What if we said that about our marriages? Right? Oh, when we first got married, I, oh, I loved Kelly. I was so excited to be with her. But now, I mean... You just can't live like that forever, right? I mean, you've got to tolerate things. Well, that would be exciting, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that make for a healthy, happy, wonderful marriage? If we wouldn't say that about our spouses, why would we say that about our God? There, there should be a continual excitement. Is it there? And if it's not, then we have to recognize. Recognize this is where we are. Now, this failure isn't fatal. Jesus gave the cure. Remember. Remember. Remember what it was like when you first got saved. Remember what it was like when you were first what the old timers would call on fire for Jesus. Remember how that felt. And then repent. Repent of letting that go away. Repent of letting that fire be replaced by, by something else. And then return. And do those first works again. This is what we have to do if we have become like the Ephesians. And I, again, I, I couldn't say. It, it's going to be hard for me to tell in my own heart at times. I certainly can't tell in your hearts. This is a time where we seek the Lord and say, Lord, search me and try me and show me. Maybe you already know. Maybe you already feel it. This is a time to deal seriously with God. His word has dealt seriously with us. And, and, and let me say one last thing and we'll have our time to respond. If you can't remember a time when you felt that way about Jesus, can I suggest to you that your deepest need today 
is to repent and believe and be saved. Your deepest need today is to ensure Jesus Christ is your Savior. To be sure you know Him. The Bible tells us to examine our lives to see if Christ is among us. And if He's not, to know we're disqualified. Listen, there is no shame in examining our lives and saying, you know what, I'm not saved. I'm going to go and get saved today. I'm going to turn to Jesus and cry out to Him and be saved. The shame is in being too proud to examine your life. The shame would be to say, well, I never felt that way, so, but I, you know, I remember the day and I prayed a prayer and I've been dumped into the water. That's, that's good. The shame would be to move forward like that and on the last day here, depart from me. I never knew you. Let's examine our hearts and examine our lives. Let's stand